from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Women at Work on Business Radio. Here is your host, Laura Zarrow. Welcome to Women at Work and our ongoing conversation about how we can get more women to join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics, for today's show on the best companies for women executives. Despite how many barriers women face at work, there are companies, and a growing number of them, in fact, that are making a concerted and impressively successful effort to bring women into leadership roles. Thanks to the National Association for Female Executives, who released a report earlier this month listing the top 70 companies for executive women, we now have data on those companies. What's making those women successful? What are the patterns that we see that we can emulate in smaller organizations or recognize should drive us as we're making our decisions about where to work? That report with information about all those companies on the list is featured in the April-May issue of Working Mother magazine and at workingmother.com. It really is an illuminating report, not just because of the measures, you know, the data, the numbers these companies earned, but because of the things it measures. It really brings into high relief what organizations can do when they're serious about advancing women into leadership roles. To discuss all of this and more, I couldn't be happier to welcome back one of my favorite guests, Suba Barry, senior your vice president and managing director at Working Mother Media. Suba oversees Working Mother Magazine, WorkingMother.com, Diversity Best Practices, which is the leading corporate membership organization supporting diversity and inclusion, and the National Association for Female Executives that I'll refer to as NAIF unless Suba tells me I'm getting it wrong. But anyway, let me tell you a little bit more about her before we begin. Over her 30-year career, Suba's had experience really everywhere in business, frontline business, operational, and leadership roles, where she's built cohesive teams that become really successful agents of change. She served as Senior Vice President Chief Diversity Officer at Freddie Mac and moved through the ranks at Merrill Lynch to become their Managing Director and Global Head of Diversity and Inclusion. Because Suba's committed to sharing what she knows, she's an adjunct professor at Columbia University's School of International and Public Affairs, where she teaches gender policy. She also serves on a number of boards, a lot, boards aligned with her passions, including education, cancer research, and women and girls. So you can see why we are so excited to welcome Suba back today. So with that, Suba, welcome back to Women at Work. Well, thank you so much for having me back. And thank you for doing all of this work to help us see what's going on in these companies. So I want to start off by asking you, what do you think is the best news in the report? Well, for me, the best news is around tying managers' compensation to women's progress. That number, CEOs are increasingly tying their managers' compensation to the progress of women in their organization. That number rose from 58% to 69%. That's a big jump. Well, what it really says is, you know, they're really holding their feet to the fire. (laughs) (laughs) It's true, isn't it? When you pay somebody for doing the right thing and that motivates behavior change, that can become enduring. And so I I love to see the fact that not only are CEOs talking about this, but they're taking actions within their organization to say, I want you to do this, and I'm going to tie a part of your compensation to it. So, I mean, there's lots of good news, but that one number stands out for me. I can see why, because it reinforces several critical things. One is that this is a a mission and a mandate coming from the top, which is really where culture change is going to happen, right? Absolutely. And then that it's manifested in pay, but it also suggests that it means that there are um, metrics that can be tracked about women's advancement in the workplace for which you can hold managers responsible. What do those include? Well, the, the, there's a number of things, as you can imagine, that we measure. You measure things like um, what are the highest paid workers? What is the percentage of highest paid workers that are women in the organization? And these are direct reports to the CEO uh, and, and the board members. Uh, another number they measure is uh, female representation of CEOs. And that is an interesting number because at the NAFI top 70 companies, that increased two percentage points uh, from last year. This year it's 14%, and the S&Ps is only 5%. 
Now, this is a, a, a strange comparison because I think neither 14% nor 5% are very good. But however, <laughs> right. our NAFI company CEO's representation is 14% as compared to the S&P 500. And in my mind, you know, that really sets the tone for what these companies stand out to do. That's and a significant spoke- difference. Yes, it is. It's three, almost three times as much. And you can always say to me, Suba, if it's 14%, remember, 86% are men. Yes, that's right. But that's 86% being men is better than 95% being <laughs> right. men. It's still progress. I want to take a small step back. So um, the National Association for Female Executives, it's NAFE. Is that the right way to NAFI. say? NAFE. Yes, right. Okay, NAFI. not NAFE. Um, and tell us what the organization is, What, how it's organized and what its purpose is. What's really interesting about... Uh, this organization is it's uh, this is this has been around for quite some time we started to do this survey about 20 years ago and the scrutiny was on looking at what is holding women back from career success and and over the years uh, year after year after year by showcasing and spotlighting the best companies and looking at the programs and policies and practices and like I, I think I spoke at a previous interview, we not only measure the numbers, but we also look at usage or utilization rates. So you can have a great policy, but if nobody's really mm-hmm. using it, it doesn't matter. So from that perspective, uh, we think that this motivates behavior change by doing two things. On one side, providing data and metrics that companies can look at and look at it year over year. And we would think companies would not only measure themselves against other best companies, but really look at their own culture to say, what can I do within here? Not just to say, I'm going to put a policy in because company X had it. Or IBM, which has been on the list for 20 years, has this policy. Let me bring that in. While that's great, you have to also look at your own company's culture to figure out how will this policy work? How do I have to tweak it for it to fit here? And the usage rates essentially tell a company about that culture. Mm-hmm. If you have a great policy, fantastic. But if nobody uses it, then you have to really look at what is holding people back. Right. And um, and whether or not it's the policy is um, a diversion or whether there are other problems that need to be solved in order for the policy to be useful. Exactly. And, and uh, you know, companies will uh, sometimes do something that sounds great on paper, but if it doesn't translate into impact, then it might as well have never happened. <laughs> the NASI survey has about 200 questions, so they're looking at representation mm-hmm. at all levels, but especially at that corporate and P&L leadership ranks. It looks and tracks and examines how many employees have access to these programs and policies that are promoting the advancement of women and how many employees take advantage of them. Plus, it also looks at how companies are training managers to help women advance. So when I talked about the compensation piece for managers, there's another aspect to it. There are mentoring and coaching programs that managers really have access to that help them understand what it is that they have to do as an individual and collectively in the teams to become a better resource for women to advance. That's one of the things that I found so valuable in looking at the report and the statistics, that it wasn't just the way that you could, as you said, measure company to company, or if you're one of the organizations that participates every year, measure yourself and see how you're progressing year to year, but that it outlines practices that... Um, just looking at the list of practices may be illuminating both for employees and employers who didn't realize what a real slate of advancement programs look like. Exactly. And see, companies, uh, what's interesting is there are some requirements. Companies must have at least 1,000 employees Mm -hmm. in the U.S., and companies must have a minimum of two women on their board of directors. Okay. So those are the those are the two requirements that we have, which may not seem like much, but that is look, we're not looking to exclude companies, but we think if you don't have at least two women on your board, don't bother to apply <laughs> till you at least get yourself there. And tell me who how many applicants how many companies participate in this overall? Um the number varies year over year, but it is it is 
uh, you know, well over 125 companies that apply uh, each year. And the numbers going up year over year. And we're excited about the fact that companies are getting bold enough about being willing to share their data and their numbers. It also tells me that those companies are they care about what they're doing. They're proud. They want to they want to get benchmarked and hopefully they want to celebrate their successes. And so this seems like in an arena where we often um, it's important that we talk about the things that are wrong that we're trying to change. This seems like a big celebration of what's going right in a key number of organizations. Exactly. And and some of these companies have some things in common uh, that, that we really want to sort of highlight. First, they're transparent. Mm-hmm. Not only do they measure data internally and set ambitious goals and track results, but they are transparent about being willing to share it externally. So that's one. The second one is they are very focused on uh, understanding the impact of unconscious bias. What do I mean by that? We as human beings, every one of us, white, non-white, we all carry bias in us. The reason it's called unconscious bias is we don't even know we have, (laughs) but it's there. And what happens with this bias seeps into how we recruit how we develop, how we promote people, how we give feedback to people. All of this is, is uh, you know, being impacted. And as a result of that, that holds certain people back. It may be women, it may be people of color, but it holds them back because they may not get the same candid feedback as a white male manager gives to one of the younger white men. Mm-hmm. Right. They may feel more uncomfortable giving that feedback to a black man, a woman, or to even a white woman. And what that does is when you're not getting feedback, you don't have the opportunity to continue to work on your own skill set, strengths and weaknesses and improve, and that holds you back. So these companies not only provide unconscious bias training, which is important, and remember, you can provide the training one year, I guarantee you by next year, about 80% of it will seep back right in because that's what unconscious bias is. Right. And we know that it's not something that um, is easily eradicated, even with training. It has to be, it's a constant effort. Exactly. The second thing they do is they really work to remove that bias from their processes. So in my recruiting process, instead of they may use technology to really screen resumes as opposed to somebody reading mm-hmm. resumes and picking up a name or a college that someone went to and making assumptions about them. Right. That's a critical distinction because while we can't eradicate our subconscious biases, what we can do is build in these processes that work around them, that protect us Correct. from them. Exactly. Exactly. Then the, what, the, the other thing that they do consistently is that they recognize and reward managers and leaders who are doing a good job developing and promoting women. You know, compensation is only one part of it. The other one is within the organization. They may give them leadership roles in becoming uh, mentor sponsors, executive uh, sponsors for their employee resource groups, etc. So they are finding ways to recognize and reward the managers and leaders who are really focusing on this. And then the C-suite and the CEO are visible, vocal sponsors for gender equality. They talk about it. Their actions absolutely illustrate that. And into their, you know, whatever they put in place within their organization, that message is consistently being delivered. Absolutely. By the way, this is Women at Work on Business Radio on Sirius XM 111. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, and I'm talking with the amazing Suba Barry, who is the Senior Vice President and Managing Director at Working Mother Media. We're talking about the recent NAFI report on the best companies for female executives, which is being featured in the April-May issue of Working Mother magazine and on workingmother.com. So, Suba, as you're talking about these key criteria that make a company really armed for success in advancing women in the workplace and also give us um, components that can be tracked and measured. Um, 
some of it seems it's like one of those things about beautiful design. It seems, of course, those are the things that we should be tracking and measuring as you list them. But could you talk a little bit about how this list of things was developed? Um, How long did it take us to get there to recognize that these are the things that we should be measuring? And each year that you do the the survey, um, how do you um, evaluate the questions that you should use? Well, what's interesting is out of those 200 questions, we tweak those questions literally every year. Some years it's on the margins and some years it's sort of an in-depth one. So we look at each question and we look at its relevance and we look at its, its validity in terms of what is the number this is producing, what is it showing us, and how do we use it. And so this is, this is a constant. In fact, right after the, the, the results come out, the first thing that the team does, this is the research team that is responsible for all of our surveys, they actually sit down and literally with a fine pencil, they go through question after question after question. The other thing they look at is to say, what are some new trends? What else are we seeing? Because companies not only give us this data, but they also give us some written uh, information that that is real uh, qualitative in terms of what are some special things that you know, we as company A is doing. Mm-hmm. And besides, I don't know, we haven't talked about the top companies, but companies like Accenture, Chico's, Deloitte, uh, EY, Fleischmann-Hillard, IBM, JLL. By the way, IBM on the list for 20 I know, years amazing. We're going to come back to that shortly. <laughs> yeah. And, and so these companies, JLL, L'Oreal, Marriott, Procter & Gamble, what's interesting is they come from a variety of industries. Not all of them, you know, you could look at Accenture, Deloitte, and EY and say, well, those are in the business services area, yes, but you also have but a Marriott. But Chico's is, isn't it? Right. You know? Uh, yeah. Chico's, you know? Think about it. So first year, by the way, this is the first year Chico's applied. They made the list, and they're in the top 10. The very Congratulations to Chico's. That's awesome. Isn't it great? It's really amazing. I, so I want to go back to something, because as before we dive into some of these companies, which really are incredible, there's a way of thinking behind this report that I think is Im- important to share, which is that, you know, in Wharton People Analytics, we think of advancing practice of evidence-based management as an ecosystem, that you're doing research, you do it in partnership with organizations, the organizations participate with you in educating new practitioners and and informing a community at large about the power of the practice. And it sounds like that's exactly what you guys are doing and that you're looking at the annual research process within an ecosystem. And it's not a slavish reporting of numbers that were meaningful 10 years ago. It's really a constant examination of what's the best way to ask the questions, what are the meaningful questions to ask, so that you're producing data that can really drive how we try and drive growth within an organization, which I don't think is happening everywhere that people look at numbers. So it's kudos to your research team, Suba. Well, thank you. You know what? I think they are fantastic, and they constantly, you know, push us uh, to 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 be better. Because remember, you know, companies participate in a lot of surveys, and they make choices about which ones to be a part of and which ones not. So when you change a survey, when you when when you change questions year over year, often it's it's going, oh my God, you're making us do more work, <laughs> right? But, but on the other hand. I think that the way they communicate that, we do calls with the companies to explain to them the rationale behind why this particular question was removed, in which company A, you may have done brilliantly well last year, but it's not there anymore this year, or why this new question is being inserted in, in which you may not show up as being that great. So I think that it's important to really communicate this clearly. And just as companies are willing to be transparent about their data and numbers, we are willing to be transparent about our data and numbers, about our processes, about our methodology and our thought process. And I think companies really appreciate that. It's also you're modeling this for other organizations where you're creating a certain kind of transparent trust partnership with these organizations to learn on behalf of everybody. And one of the things that has to happen is that transparency, that trust, that rigor, as well, has to be brought inside the organization if they're going to take the kind of progress seriously. And when you look at the companies that are on your top 10 list, I know that those are companies that do that. They take their own data gathering seriously, and they're transparent internally, and it makes clearly all the difference in the world. And we learn from them. 
we learn from these best companies because often, you know, they are ahead of the curve. They are already innovating and thinking about ways in which they can further stretch, push. Uh, and and we, we appreciate that. And sometimes we'll take those and bring them on into, into uh, the questions we ask, into the way we shape how those questions are asked, etc. So I have to I want to I, I want to start with IBM because this completely changed my notion of IBM. 20 years on the list. And you know what? The, our, our 100 best companies list for working mothers, they've been on that list every year for 32 years. So I actually asked them, I asked the, uh, the, the, the uh, head of human resources at IBM, you know, why is it? Why, why is it that IBM pays so much attention to it? And I've, I'm very fortunate to actually know the uh, ex-chief diversity officer at IBM. His name is Ted Childs. Have you heard of Ted Childs? No. But I think Ted I need Childs. to. Well, Ted Childs retired very, many, many years ago, but he's still active in this community. And, and he was the one that, that he worked with Lou Gerstner, and he made it really important for IBM to focus on diversity and inclusion, to look at diverse communities, to look at their ranks of women. And they didn't say, well, we're a technology company and there are not that many women engineers. So, uh, you know, what was interesting about them is, that they chose to focus on it at a time when it really wasn't on most people's radar. Not at all. When, when, when essentially it wasn't cool uh, to be <laughs> focusing on diversity and inclusion. What was their driver at the time? Was it to become more innovative? Well, somewhere they figured out that um, being diverse, being inclusive, gave them an opportunity to innovate even more. We now have data. Uh, most recently, Sodexo did a very interesting survey, and it'll blow your mind uh, about what this survey did. It was a five-year, one-of-a-kind study, and they studied 70 entities across different functions representing 50,000 managers worldwide within Sodexo. And they just shared the results, and we're happy to send that to you. But what was interesting about it was operating margins client satisfaction, employee retention, all kinds of performance indicators were higher amongst gender-balanced teams. This was just gender, meaning a ratio of between 40 and 60% women to men ratio allowed for them to excel. Operating margins were significantly increased amongst those gender-balanced teams. Gender-balanced teams had an average employee retention rate that was eight percentage points higher. Same thing with client retention, nine percentage points higher. Employee and, engagement, 14 percentage points higher. those turn into big, big dollars. I have a particular question, though, because for, for pe- those of us who deeply believe in this, we see it and we say, of course. We also know, though, that sometimes you can have um, a diverse slate in the room, but the room won't have an inclusive culture. In these reports, are they also examining how they're creating the culture that ensures that that diversity can be brought forth into how the company's operating? Well, what's interesting is take something as simple as an interview process. You can say, well, I'm going to demand that my companies that I uh, use for recruiting present a diverse slate to me. Mm -hmm. But if you have a group of internal managers, leaders who are all white men, guess who's going to get hired? Right. They're going to hire the people that they feel comfortable with, who's usually the people that look like them. Exactly. So one of the things that companies started to do was to say, not only do we want a diverse slate of of potential recruits, we want a diverse slate of interviewers. And they started to measure that data. And they found out that when you had a more diverse slate of interviewers, your outcomes were that you tended to hire more diversity. And I'd have to imagine that that's also then further reinforced when you've built in processes to the interview um, that avoid our subconscious biases, including resume review, how questions are asked and answered, are you doing one-to-one interviews or group interviews, all those things. And Iris Bonet has a fabulous book on this about how you can engineer these systems to protect against yourself. Well, you know, and and going back, I have to go back to IBM. Diane Gerson, I asked her, I said, year after year, you guys know you're good. How can you keep applying? And and it was, 
you know, she, she thanked me because we've got some terrific coverage for uh, this report. And she said, you know, this is terrific coverage. You should be proud of the high level of respect and recognition that your award garners at IBM. We're thrilled to be a 20-time and a 32-time working mother recipient. And do not take this honor for granted. Today, more than ever before, we must keep raising the bar. That is a company, yes, they have a woman at the helm. Yes, they do. She's amazing. But what's what's interesting about this is that good companies like the IBMs, like the Johnson & Johnsons, like the EYs, these guys continue to raise the bar. They say, (laughs) yes, we're grateful to be on the list. Thank you very much. But we know we cannot take our eye off of this ball because guess what? Look at the ultimate numbers. Yes, IBM's Ginny Rometty is one of those people, thankfully, making our um, percentage of CEOs on our list 14% versus the S&P 500. And, and so, but you know, an enormous amount of work to be done. It's incredible. So on that note, I think it's the perfect moment for us to take a little break. But stay with us. After we take this momentary break, I'm going to continue my conversation with Suba Barry. I'm Laura Zarrow, and you're listening to Women at Work here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 111. You're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Here again is Laura Zarrow. Welcome back to Women at Work and our ongoing conversation about how we can get more women to join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics. And today, we're focusing on a report that lists the top 70 companies for female executives. My guest is Suba Barry, Senior Vice President and Managing Director at Working Mother Media. And the report from NAFI, the National Association for Female Executives, is featured in Working Mother Magazine and on WorkingMother.com. And it shows us what progressive organizations, what leading organizations, organizations are doing to ensure women's advancement into executive positions. So, Sue, but before we the break, we were discussing, you know, the amazing Ginny Romedy, IBM, all the things that they've been doing over 20 years to stay on your list and to keep making progress. Um, talk to me a little bit about how you've seen them change over time. The IBM is an interesting company because I think that their um, basic roots are are completely firmly entrenched in looking for uh, meritocracy, looking for the really great people. And, and to some extent, IBM has been uh, interestingly uh, agnostic a little bit in terms of where that uh, amazing skill set comes from. They were early in hiring African-Americans. They were early in hiring women. And so I think that they started off from a great place, and then they've had consistent leadership in the early days, mostly male leaders, male CEOs that continued to carry that forward. And then with leaders like Ted Childs at that, at that juncture mm-hmm. and others that followed him, there has always been consistency. In fact, I remember when I was at Merrill, we went in for some executive training to the IBM, uh, uh, you know, uh, facilities, that 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 the training uh, center that they have. I think it's in uh, Armonk, mm-hmm. and um, a whole group of Merrill leaders, mostly men, and I went with them, and we went to the that facility, and we had a whole series of presentations about leadership and the likes. And then one of the presenters was this gentleman, Ted Child, who came in and essentially thunder and brimstone about (laughs) the importance of diversity and inclusion in the workplace and how that drove innovation and how that changed culture. And I remember this this sort of uh, chatty group of Merrill managers who obviously were talking about, uh, you know, golf and and, and, uh, travel (laughs) and all other sorts of things on the way over. On that trip back, you should have heard that, you know, I think it was a big bus. And I was, <laughs> I wish I had videotaped it, but, but it, it really transformed how they caused our leaders and managers to think about the importance of inclusion. Now, did Merrill change overnight? No, but I think the seeds get sown when you observe other companies do this sort of stuff. You begin to say to yourself, 
what would it look like if I did this? So, Subhas, take a step back because it's, it's, you conjured a really, I think, potent image of, you know, you're going on a bus all together for this intensive learning session and something so profound happened that you leave changed. And on that bus back, was it silent? Were people talking? What was the immediate reaction to that impactful, those to Ted's impactful words? See, it was a combination of, you know, the, it wasn't the boisterous, loud uh, talk that happens when people feel in charge and in control. Mm-hmm. There was almost a humility about what people seem to experience. And to me, I just observed that. I listened. A few people had thoughts and ideas that they were sharing. But there was overall sort of a uh, almost an introspective mood on that bus back as though people were saying, boy, this is not something I've thought about. It's not something I know much about. God, I don't know how good I am at this. There's a lot of learning to do. What's really powerful about that is it's reinforcing that change, the catalyst for change comes with a certain amount of humility and courage to go someplace you haven't gone before and face that the way you've been doing something isn't working. Um, So when you look at the organizations that are not IBM, that they didn't have this deep culture of diversity that clearly, you know, put them out in front 20 years ago. But you see these organizations that are coming onto the list. What do you see that's changing the culture within the organization when it wasn't part of their um, inherent DNA? So, you know, let's let's talk very specifically with a few examples. The companies like Chico's is a retailer. Mm-hmm their executive branches almost mirror the level of women in their workforce. So this is a company that doesn't say, well, you know, uh, all our different divisions and branches, we have a lot of women because we're in the business of clothing women and, and dressing women. Um, and, but, but where it comes to leadership, let's find a man to come in and do that. They are not doing it. And interestingly enough, not only is their CEO a woman, and their executive branches mirror the level of women in their workforce, but 96% of all their management promotions went to women, and 91% of their corporate executives are women. So here's a company... Those are astonishing numbers. Yeah, it is, and they're walking the talk because they have the option. You compare them to other retailers, and I will not name names, (laughs) but I will tell you that they do not reflect that. So Chico's absolutely stands out and we are very, very proud of them for setting that example. But take a company like EY or Accenture, which which is in the business services mm-hmm. uh, area, where they really have to make uh, a special push, not only to bring in women, because you can bring in the women, but then what happens with the kind of uh, uh, travel they have to do yes. and the pace of work they have to do during the childbearing, childbearing years? Think about what that takes. So I commend those companies, business services companies like Accenture, like Deloitte, like EY, which are not only on the list, but in the top 10. But what's interesting is they have made a commitment and focus to saying, how can we have women represented in leadership? So uh, they launched a women in leadership program, 47% now in management and senior leadership roles. So now their goal is 40% of all women in the U.S. workforce by 2020. That's their goal, Accenture's goal. And what's interesting about this is they have to think about things like, okay, we have working moms who've had kids who have to travel, so they provide a breast milk uh, service where women, no matter where they are, can pump and literally ship. Mm -hmm. It's something that overnight the milk will get, you know, Uh, refrigerated and delivered back home and they will do it every day for as long as these women are traveling so that even if they have great child care at home, they're providing this service free of cost. I also love that Accenture, as part of that same effort, they also realized that they wanted to give the working mothers, especially those with newborns, the option of not traveling for the year after the baby was born with absolute guarantee of no penalty for not traveling during that time if that was their choice. And exactly. I th- and I thought that was because that was about both that was about 
problem solving on a tactical level, but that's also about changing culture. And, and it doesn't come without, you know, pushback from within. And that's what takes great leadership mm-hmm. that steps up to say, we are committed to this in order to make this work. Here's what we have to provide. And I, I'm really proud of how these companies really think about how they're going to change culture and maintain that. So I want to switch gears a little bit, and then we'll come back to more of these. Because one of the things that I noticed that was interesting is that there are some places where the numbers went down a little this year um, that I'd like to make sure you help us understand. So we saw that there was increased CEO engagement in making sure that women have the best chance to become leaders. But we also saw a dip in some places in key indicators like top earners, yet you have 70 companies as opposed to 60 on the list. Can you talk a little bit about those patterns? Well, one of the things we wanted to do was we overall wanted to raise the bar to include and honor companies that were really doing a great, great job and trying very, very hard. But when you then go from the top 50, Mm -hmm. to then the top 60, to the top 70, those companies that are at the lower end of it, that are companies 50 to 60 and 60 to 70, are not going to have the same sorts of statistics and data that the top 10 or the 20 or the 30 do. And that tends to actually reduce some of these numbers. So the reality is that while female representation among the CEO levels went up, where tying managers' compensation and that commitment that CEOs are making went up, you know, female executives responsible for divisions worth more than a billion dollars decreased. But that is the law of small numbers right? because we don't have that many female <laughs> executives. So you, if you can have a change of one or two, that dramatically skews that percentage. And the additional uh, piece of it is that the top earners went down also. But these are things that will come back up. Absolutely. These are things that we absolutely believe is, is going to allow us um, you know, to, to be able to, to share with uh, the, the companies that are actually – uh, continuing to strive and work hard on some fronts to essentially say to them, there are other things on which you still need to improve. So we don't let that bother us as much. We really wanted to be able to honor uh, a few more companies, and I'm really glad we expanded that list. And I, as you know, we only list and rank companies alphabetically. We do not, uh, <laughs> you know, we do not assign right. the top 10 have a ranking, but other than the top 10, the rest of them, you know, it, it, it's irrelevant whether you are number 11 or number 70. You're just ranked alphabetically. Now, being on a list is what matters here. By the way, this is Women at Work and Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, and I'm talking with Suba Barry, who's the Senior Vice President and Managing Director at Working Mother Media. We're discussing their recent report on the best companies for female executives, which is also featured in the April-May issue of Working Mother magazine and on workingmother.com, where you can go and explore it and really get into these details yourself, whether you want to see the patterns um, of best practices in these organizations or who the organizations are because you're job hunting. So, Suba, um, one of the things that I would love to know more about is how um, has Working Mother yet correlated some of these numbers with how these experiences are for work, women of color? Well, we, we did a separate uh, survey last year for um, multicultural women and their experience in the workplace. And as you know, we do have a multicultural women's survey that comes out. Yeah, it's fantastic. Right. So that's coming next. And I'm hoping that you'll have me back on your show to talk about <laughs> oh, that. Oh, Suba, I'd love it. <laughs> but, but the reality is the experience of multicultural women remains very challenging. But we have some interesting data this year where the number of companies that are applying for the Multicultural Women's Survey, jumped by 100%. Oh, my God. 100%? So, so 100% increase in the number of companies that applied. Now, I don't know whether that's the Women's March and the hashtag MeToo movement or all the political environment in this country. Whatever the reason, I'm not going to question yeah, that. Yeah, don't argue with it. <laughs> and, and I'm going to say to you that we are now this is just the ones that have registered. The survey isn't complete. The survey isn't, uh, you know, the last date isn't done. But 100 percent increase in the number of companies that have registered to apply for the multicultural women survey. That was always one where I think companies shied away from mm-hmm. sharing numbers because the numbers just didn't look good. 
for companies to be willing to step up, they've registered, they've told us they're going to share the data. And I have to tell you, my fingers are crossed. And even if 100% of the ones that registered don't apply, I'm hoping at least half of them do. But it's going to be great, and I can't wait to share those Oh, I'm so excited to hear about it, because part of what this represents is a courage and that we're going to have some really meaningful data. And we know that you can't manage what you don't measure. So just by participating, just by registering, that's a huge step forward. And if you've had a 100% increase, the yield should be pretty good. I hope so. (laughs) Um, so let's go back to talking about a few of these other companies and some of these active, some of the um, initiatives that are going on. So one of the lists that I thought, saw in the report that I thought was pretty amazing was the support programs. And if you don't mind, I'm just going to run through this list for a second for the listeners who may not be aware of this as kind of the package of programs that Um, Any one of them can make a difference, but together it's really powerful. Leadership training, employee resource groups, executive coaching, um, developing high potential women, mentoring, succession planning, career counseling, job rotation, and sponsorship. So this was the list of programs that you assessed. And what's amazing was with the exception of job rotation and sponsorship that were still pretty strong – All of these companies had more than 91% of these available to their women. Am I reading those numbers right? You're absolutely right. So that this is kind of like comprehensively, these are your best practices. Is that fair to say? I would agree with you, yes. So can you talk to us a little bit about some of these features? Because I don't think that they get a lot of airtime, particularly for – as women are looking at organizations where they want to apply because they're going to be put on a path to success. Um, So can you talk a little bit about how these things work together, say, leadership training and the employee resource groups? So so one of the things that that happened when companies started to uh, put in place employee resource groups, they were very social beings in the beginning. It was more about creating a sense of community. It's about sharing culture from those communities with the rest of the organization and so on. But as time went on, companies began to realize that they were a powerful driver of frontline businesses. So these diverse ERGs, BRGs, so either employee resource group or business resource groups, really became facilitators for business. I'll give you one example. At Unilever, uh, they use the employee resource group almost as a um, a group to survey and benchmark and understand uh, psychographics of a particular community, is to understand their uh, behavior as it relates to uh, spending money or where they choose to be focused on or how they respond to advertising or how they look at certain products. So companies actually began to use them as a market survey group, oh my a God. marketing survey group. How brilliant is that? So it's not only that they're there to help create a sense of community for one another and to be advocates for their community's concerns to the organization. They then become focus groups for the organization. And in addition to that, they then become resources that become, um, uh, you know, are able to bring people from their community to screen to come work at the company. So they become recruiters on behalf of the company. This this has more dimensions to it than I realized. So that by creating now for the employee resource groups. Um, I know that one of the things that helps make them successful, and Catalyst has a wonderful guideline about how to run your employee resource groups. Um, but it's, it seems like there's kind of two components to it. One is they need to be employee-led so they're empowered from within, but the organization has to help make them happen. Could you talk a little bit about um, how they start and if you've seen any examples that you can um, lead us to for how to get one off the ground? So, so um, Catalyst does a great job with that. So does Diversity Best Practices. We have almost a primer on how do you build this from scratch. So that's sort of an interesting one to share with your audience. And where do they find it if they want to get a hold of it? Susan? Just go to diversitybestpractices.com uh, to, the, uh, to the online website and you will see a link to this. Fantastic. Okay. 
So, so the way you start this is usually it's initiated by a groundswell of employee interest. So you may have a group of five to eight to ten employees come together to say, we really should have a employee resource group. Let's let's pick the um, LGBT, gay, lesbian, bi- bisexual, uh, transgender community uh, representatives. So a group of LGBTQ employees within an organization could come together to say, we would really like to have an employee resource group focused on helping solve some of the challenges that our uh, colleagues and us, we face. And usually these groups start off not just with people from that community, but also with allies. What do I mean by that? It may be somebody whose child is a member of the LGBTQ community. Uh, so, so it doesn't always have to be or has a sibling who is a member of the LGBTQ community. So you don't always need to have the person belonging to the community itself, but as an ally. Mm-hmm. So they come together and they will usually create a proposal and they will take it to the, you know, if you have an Office of Diversity and Inclusion or an HR organization that's dedicated to it, you would take it to them. Companies will usually have a set of governance rules and guidelines that allow these individuals to say, okay, in order to have this ERG be, um, you know, blessed and funded by the, by the corporation, here are some of the things you need to do. And one of the things that I re- realized when I was first, uh, you know, starting this work at Merrill Lynch was that typically you need to also define what sort of employee they need to be. You have to be an employee of good standing. You can't have somebody that is a failing employee in their day job stepping up to say, I'll take a leadership in this, Mm -hmm. and somehow that's going to protect me and keep my job. But you noted something important here, is that while it is, there's kind of a grassroots component of it, that it comes from the group that wants to get together. The employer is providing a system to acknowledge it, to bless it, to fund it, and to promise that they'll listen to the people who come together and the recommendations and the voice that comes forth. Is that correct? Absolutely. And then what happens is typically it used to be that they would find an executive sponsor. In the early days, it was about these employees going to whichever leader that they may have known on the margins and say, could you please be our executive sponsor? Usually this executive sponsor was a senior leader, a direct report to the CEO of the company. So someone senior enough and seasoned enough that is a guide. And somebody who has both social capital and wisdom. Absolutely. Okay. But they may or may not always have, it used to be in the beginning, the uh, African-American or black ERG would look for somebody that was African-American to be their executive sponsor. As time went on, you began to realize our power is not in having one of our own be our executive sponsor. Well, that's almost an easy out. The power is in having somebody that's not one of our own. So assume, for, for example, that African-American employees and women want to be more represented in the technology area. They would be smart in asking the chief technology officer, mm-hmm. who may not be an African-American man or woman, who may be Indian, who may be white, who may be Asian. You, you don't know what they are, but they are try to go for some link that's going to allow you to be able to draw benefits from having that kind of leadership represented. So that was the first one, where you didn't have to find somebody just from your own community to be your executive sponsor, but really rather looking more along the lines of where would we like to make greater inroads and look at that. So that's one. The second one uh, aspect of it that was really important is, uh, this is, uh, I think it was Johnson Controls, if I'm not mistaken. Um, they actually interview their executive sponsors. So executive sponsors, they pick three or four individuals that they want to have be their executive sponsor. And then the leaders of this ERG interview Ah. the executive sponsor. And I remember one gentleman, he was on a panel somewhere and said to me, that was one of the toughest interviews I've ever had. (laughs) So it sounds that one of the things that helps the ERGs have get traction 
is that the executive sponsor both needs to have that kind of social capital, have the expertise, but also have an inroads to senior level decision making so that you're in a way protecting the employee resource group or the business resource group from picking somebody that they feel comfortable with, but may not be able to get their voice heard at the highest levels of the organization. Exactly. And so it's something that organizations, one of the ways that organizations can then encourage these groups to thrive is by identifying um, senior people with power and collective respect who they can then select from to serve as their advisors. So it's a whole system that needs to be put into place in order for these to really make maximum impact. Exactly. And then within the ERG, they have subcommittees then. The subcommittees may focus on business development, recruitment, social programs, um, uh, development and advancement. So these subcommittees each focus on the needs of that constituency and then figure out what needs to get done. So this does a few things. It allows a lot of people uh, from the organization to have an ability to contribute, not just as members, but actually as leaders. So whoever leads the business development subcommittee, for example, you may have a whole whole structure there. All of a sudden, these people are constantly using that population to ideate around Mm -hmm. whether it's new products or services, whether it's on, you know, how do you relate to us? This is where the marketing stuff comes in. You know, we become a market research uh, entity that is really a focus group that's helping you understand how better to market to my community. And when you people. realize that organizations like Accenture have you know, close to 500,000 employees, the numbers are staggering, but there's tremendous power in these employee resource groups. On the flip side, though, it sounds like, particularly if you look at these models, these are um, guidelines that you could apply even in very small settings as ways of organizing an employee resource group when you don't have tens of thousands of representatives, but even if you have dozens to make sure that you have upper level advocacy, make sure you have an agenda, make sure you have structures so that you're hearing everybody's voice. Is that fair, Suba? And once again, if people want to get this information, where can they go? It's, what's amazing about ERGs, there's a whole under Diversity Best Practices, our website, diversitybestpractices.com, you will find a whole list of resources. And of course, if your company is a member of Diversity Best Practices, we have yet another level of, um, you know, I, I think there's some password protected sites that give you even more data and more details. So it would be good for you to ask your company, are we members of Diversity Best Practices? And along with that come a whole bunch of benefits that are not only there for your chief diversity officer and your HR teams, but they are available to every employee of that company. That's a really great benefit, Suba. So if companies participate in the Diversity Best Practices, every employee within the organization can get access to those resources? Absolutely. That's a huge, huge benefit. So, but all this work you're doing, it's just so impressive. We're learning so much from it. I can't thank you enough. So let us, so if you could share with our listeners again, um, obviously there's workingmother.com. What are the next reports that are coming out? We will next have the uh, best companies for multicultural women. We will have the best law firms for women. We will have the 100 best companies for working mothers, and we will have the inclusion index. And and the inclusion index, this is different from just a list uh, as we are doing uh, the the other surveys. The survey that we do on diversity and inclusion, we convert it into an index much like the disability index or the HRC index for the LGBTQ community. Suba. The reason we do the index is because it's simply... Suba, I hate to do this. We are running out of time, which is just evidence that you're going to have to come back on the show. Special thanks to Suba Barry. I'm Laura Zarrow here at Women at Work.